This is Pen Dust Radio. Welcome, all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio. Definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. The 1970s in Birmingham, Alabama was a time fraught with racial tension and confusing questions of identity. Author Terry Barr found the music of that era confusing as well. Southern rock competed with glam and disco, and for a long-haired guy like Terry, finding his place, his subculture, and the accompanying music wasn't easy. Terry Barr is the self-proclaimed poet laureate of Bessemer, Alabama. He is the author of three essay collections and teaches creative nonfiction at Presbyterian College. Terry lives with his family in Greenville, South Carolina, and writes regularly on Medium.com. Currently, he's listening to a vinyl copy of the Rolling Stones' Out of Our Heads. Long-Haired Disco Boys, written by Terry Barr, read by Toby Tomplay. As a southern rock and roller and later a country bluegrass star. The lyrics of Charlie Daniels' hit 1974 song, Long-Haired Country Boy, have often intrigued me. In the song, Daniels insists on his long-haired rocker rights, and perhaps more importantly, his right to be an individual Southern man who likes what he likes and doesn't want to be hated or lectured to. I understand this deep impulse. Those who put down rock and roll have shadowed me all my life. Even in 1988, during my first year as a tenure-track English professor, I listened in wonder as an older white man, our college's librarian, disparaged the Beatles as if they and their yeah, yeah, yeah crap, his words, were merely a passing fad. Later that year, I had to explain to another old white male colleague with whom I was planning a course in media and society just what MTV was. He had no idea, and I hope, since he was a very sweet guy, that I exercised all due patience and respect as I described a TV channel full of music videos. I was 18 when Long-Haired Country Boy was popular, and one of my friends and I used to sing it together as he strummed his acoustic guitar. We were Long-Haired Country Boys, or at least Long-Haired, native-born, suburban Alabama boys. And we loved and defended our rock music. Our white boys' music. Preachers and parents tried to dissuade us from this devil's music, this noise. They tried to get us to cut our hair, as if long hair might make us commies or freaks, or, in likely their worst nightmares, fags. They often took offense when we claimed, based on the portraits hanging in our church, that Jesus had long hair too. I don't know about my friend, but I was certainly called fag by some of my acquaintances. Because I wore my hair too long. Because I didn't go out for football. Actually, I did in seventh grade for three painful days. 
because I joined the high school thespian club and because I wasn't exactly anyone's idea of a Romeo. The name-calling never led to any fights or physical altercations, but had I been more belligerent than I was, I could have surely received the ass-licking that I know some wanted to give me. Even as I use that phrase, ass-licking, I understand how strange and ironic it is, what some southern white boys want to do to or with other white boys, or maybe even black boys. While I loved rock music, especially from the British invaders and the American psychedelics, I was ambivalent about 1970s Southern rock. I loved the Allman Brothers, saw the Marshall Tucker Band live, and will always consider Midnight Rider and Take the Highway as favorite songs from that time in my life. But all the other Southern boogie bands, I could take or leave, and mostly the latter. Daniels, Barefoot Jerry, Black Oak, Arkansas, Elvin Bishop, Wet Willie. I'm not sure I could pick out one from another were you to play them for me on a deluxe turntable. Of course, when these bands were popular and play in venues in my regional backyard, I couldn't proclaim loudly that I didn't like them. I couldn't face my friend's wrath or scorn or the social stigma that would have followed had I denounced any of these sacred sons as fostering the redneck southern image some of us were trying so desperately to shed. So, I held my tongue and nodded, as if I agreed with Charlie Daniels that the South's gonna do it again. By the time I finished high school, I'd seen three bands who were solely or primarily African-American. Earth, Wind, and Fire, Billy Preston, and Buddy Miles. Each one was an opening or middle act, warming everyone up for the headliners. Uriah Heep, who canceled while we were listening to Earth, Wind, and Fire. Eric Clapton and Three Dog Night. They were all strong performers, even Buddy Miles, whose hit song, Them Changes, we ridiculed before, during, and after the show. That he played drums on the Jimi Hendrix album Band of Gypsies was somehow lost on my friends and me. Back then, I would have gone to see Billy Preston had he been the headliner. He was the closest thing to a Beatle that I had known, the only non-Beatle musician to be given a credit on a Beatles recording. But in those days, my gang fell on the principle that only white rock and roll bands were worthy of our time, dollars, and our cool cash. And in my home area of Birmingham, Alabama, crossing over the segregated lines could get you into trouble. In 1956, African-American singer and pianist Nat King Cole was knocked down by a group of white men while performing for an all-white audience. Here's another example of how bad and wrong things were. I used to laugh with my friends when the shy lights hit have You Seen Her played through our radios. When alone, though, I turned the volume up and sang along, visualizing myself in Eugene Records' beautifully haunting images. Yet, I was afraid to let my friends know this truth about me, my own closeted life. In all those rock shows, I only remember one African-American person in the crowd, and that was at a Kinks show at the Birmingham Jefferson Small Concert Hall. The year was 1979. And this guy, like the rest of us, seemed pretty stoned and ready to rock out to You Really Got Me. He was by himself, it seemed, and I'll always wonder what drew him to the event. Could he have loved white boy rock and roll and the kinks as I did? Was that possible? Am I that blind or racist? In 1979, Birmingham elected its first black mayor, Richard Arrington Jr., so many of us were still willingly, blindly living in a segregated world. 
To claim otherwise, even then, would be to antagonize those who were still standing their ground for causes lost and irredeemable. What is it about youth and young manhood, to quote kings of Leon, that causes southern males of a certain era to want to beat unlike hearts and minds to a pulp? To want to torture, publicly ridicule, and maybe even lynch those seeking a different pleasure? What is our rebellious defiance all about? Why, in the 1970s, did we white boys war against each other and cast each other out if we played or liked the wrong music? I got into so much trouble just because I preferred rocker Neil Young to his supposed antagonists, Leonard Skinner. I know that Neil started It with Southern Man and Alabama. I also know that in the spring of 1973, there were at least 16,000 other white people who, along with me, watched Neil perform at the University of Alabama, near the site of where, ten years earlier, George Wallace had tried to block admission of a black student to the University of Alabama. We cheered, especially those most provocative of Southern songs, too. Neil released Tuscaloosa, his live album of that show, just last year. I'm so glad I was there with some of my close friends. We loved it. But when I told other friends... They worried about me. Isn't he anti-South? Ooh, I hate his voice. He sings like a woman. And so, by inference, he might be one of those fags which anyone who knew anything about Neil knew wasn't true. But even if it was, so what? As for Leonard Skinner, I never saw them live. But long after the plane crash that killed Ronnie Van Zant and other band members... I saw the band's vestiges, the Rossington Collins Band, live in Knoxville. I remember little about the show, except that we sat in the side balcony. The band played their one hit, Please Don't Misunderstand Me. And for the climax, the band placed a chair center stage, shone a spotlight on it, and on the chair placed Van Zant's iconic black hat. Then they played an instrumental version of Freebird that surely lasted 15 minutes. If I remember correctly... It brought the house down. And as iconic images or moments go, what says Southern Man better than Freebird, no matter how or under what circumstances it's played? It took me decades to free myself from its influence. So if Freebird was bad, how did I escape Sweet Home Alabama? The short answer is, I didn't. As an Alabama Crimson Tide fan, I hear the song constantly during Autumn Saturdays, and after Alabama defeated Florida and white male poster boy Tim Tebow in 2009 for the SEC Championship, my own daughter played the song repeatedly and made me dance to it. Something changed in that moment for me, though it wasn't my manhood. Because here's the Whitman-esque contradiction of my southern man's life. I made peace with Leonard Skinner or at least with Sweet Home Alabama. I even grew to like the song A Simple Kind of Man, in part thanks to rock critic and historian Mark Kemp and his beautiful memoir, Dixie Lullaby. Yet, I'll always revere Neil Young, but will never find a place for Charlie Daniels, even though I might hum along to Long-Haired Country Boy, if I ever hear it again. Along with such loves, though, I will confess that back then, and even now, I was a southern guy who loved disco, 
the music movement of the mid to late 1970s, which caused so many white men to retch and start a counter death to disco movement, chronicled in many places. My favorite being the recent documentary, The Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? So yes, the story or myth of the strong white southern man defending his heritage, land, woman, entire family, and his white boy rock and roll is certainly a potent one. It's simply not the only one. Less than six blocks from Birmingham's Boutwell Auditorium, where I once heard Marshall Tucker, and yeah, Charlie Daniels too, another old building used to sit on 21st Street. This building, which was at least 10 stories high, may have held apartments or business offices on its upper floors. I don't remember those details. What I do remember is that in the 1970s, when my long hair was flying and flannel shirt breezing away, a dance club opened on the ground floor of this building. The club was called Bells, named after Bell Watling, the madam from Gone with the Wind. This club was a disco. A gay disco. And while it's gone now, with or without the wind, during the several years of its life, it gave Birmingham's gay and some of its straight population one of the best places to socialize and dance of any venue in the Southeast. Bell's was so packed on weekend nights that the moniker Meat Market described it, literally. And Bell's was not the only gay disco in Birmingham. I knew of at least two others. The first, chances are, was the first gay club I ever entered. I was barely 17, on a double date with a close friend and her much older boyfriend. My blind date, a young woman a year older than me, had already been married and divorced, facts I learned only after we picked her up. My friends wanted to go to Chances Are to see the drag shows, and not wanting to be a coward, I agreed. I can't say that I loved or even understood the experience but my date had to sit on my lap during the show since the bar's crowd exceeded all comfort and safety. We made out right there and in the back seat all the way home. And afterward, we never spoke again. In the following days, what I thought about was not my date or that we had gotten into a bar as underage teens. Instead, I thought about how beautiful many of the drag queens were. I would have loved to set up some of the macho bullshit high school jocks I knew with one of those queens, though that would have been unfair and cruel to the queens, and proof of my own blindness and hatred. I told my best friend about the experience. He would later come out to me when we were in college, but at that time, the fall of 1973, I think we were both amazed that of the two of us, I got inside of a gay club before he did. The queens, the audience, and the bar workers were all racially mixed. I know I remarked on it at the time, but I don't think it hit me so hard given the entirety of the experience. Definitely not an experience I had at any of the straight clubs I snuck into as a teen or legally entered in the coming years. The other gay disco in Birmingham was the legendary Gizmo Club. I say legendary because my friend and I had heard many rumors about the club from, of all people, are church youth directors who also worked in the Birmingham theater scene. I was 15 when I first heard mention of this bar. At that point in my life, I had yet to sneak into any club, and when I did, I had my eyes set on the Crazy Horse, a rock club on Morris Avenue in supposedly underground Birmingham. I had no reason to try to get into the gizmo. 
Over the next few years, it loomed as an exotic venue, something alien and even dangerous to my high school crowd. Fortunately, my college friends had other views. During my sophomore year, I accompanied a group, many of whom also majored in theater, on a Saturday night swing through Birmingham's bar scene. We started at the old Tide Tiger Club near Birmingham's Legion Field because one of my friends had a brother who attended nearby Birmingham Southern College. Her brother, she told us, was gay and had suggested that after a few beers at the Tide Tiger, we go dancing at the gizmo. Events and images blur after all these years, but I recall that the gizmo was a tiny club with a long awning across the front. The gay crowd inside, again, was racially mixed, and if the white men outnumbered the black, it couldn't have been by much. The dance floor couldn't have been much larger than my kitchen, yet that didn't stop everyone from jamming in. It didn't matter whether you had a partner or not, just get on the floor and the magic would happen. The songs I remember best from this clubbing trip were Silver Convention's Fly, Robin, Fly, the Isley Brothers' Fight the Power, and Hot Chocolate's You Sexy Thing, all circa 1975. Over the next couple of years, the gizmo was our club of choice. The music was edgy and the wildness palpable. I knew back then that in such a strongly southern town, the gizmo was the place to be. What do I mean by strongly southern? Well, Birmingham was hostile to integration, alternative lifestyles, and once even to rock music itself when two DJs from WAQY, Wacky 1220, instigated the greatest of Beatle record bonfires. My memories and realizations about my disco years rose up again a few weeks back when my wife and I watched HBO's The Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? In one segment, a former New York DJ began discussing what happened to disco when a straight, white Chicago DJ started the Death to Disco movement. Crowds filled Comiskey Park one summer night, and after watching the game, they spilled out onto the field to burn disco records, wrecking the field and many of the seats in the bleachers, too. Only many of the records they burned weren't disco, but soul albums from the 60s and 70s by artists like Marvin Gaye and the Ohio Players. The vast majority of records burned that night was music by black artists. When you look closely at disco music, other than the Bee Gees and trying to start naming the white artists in the genre, you don't get very far. Yeah, former Rick Derringer guitarist Dan Hartman had a hit with Instant Replay, but the pool grows shallow after that. Derringer himself spun off of albino rock singer Edgar Winter, a favorite of my white male hard rock buddies in high school. Such degrees of separation failed to impress these friends of mine, whose distaste for and fear of disco were equivalent to their feelings for gay people or integration. Of course, much of the disco music from that era was Latin and Caribbean-influenced. A lot of black and a lot of brown. The point that the DJ from New York, himself gay, was making is that the disco rage, the death to disco movement, was a direct reaction to the gay and black music scene where, in essence, disco began. It was a reaction to what straight white America couldn't process and, of course, didn't want to tolerate or abide. 
It's hard to bite your tongue or to not be embarrassed or ashamed when a close male friend disparages Donna Summer or viscerally recoils at the very mention of David Bowie. For in the days before long-haired southern country boys became coolly ubiquitous, some of us had to duck and cover to save our bodies and soul from friends and classmates who called us sissy because of the length of our hair or because we decided to try out for the school play instead of the football team. I'd never want to tell these friends and classmates that if they looked even deeper into my record collection, they'd find artists like the early village people or Sylvester, whose song, You Make Me Feel, Mighty Real, saturated all the gay discos, but never got airplay anywhere else. These artists and songs exhilarated people like me. They made us want to dance with anyone. And so we did as we did with the new music of crossover rockers. Should I have told these friends that in the late 70s and 80s, gay discos throughout the Southeast played extended mixes of songs by artists they loved, like Bruce Springsteen's Dancing in the Dark, or The Kinks' Wish I Could Fly Like Superman, or Disco Rod Stewart's Do You Think I'm Sexy? White rockers, who had formerly soared from sonic speakers found in basement apartments and old garage rooms turned into practice spaces, now boomed through gilded disco balls swirling above dance floors where people of all colors, mainly men, understood that grooves are not just rock-induced and definitely not just Southern. On one level, they must have known and it makes me wonder what all these guys weren't telling me. What else they might have liked or loved? So, what am I saying about music in the South, my youthful adventures, and identity of all sorts? Let's return for a moment to that radio station, W-A-Q-Y, Wacky 1220. When I first began listening to the station in early 1970, one of its prominent disc jockeys entertained us daily with his wit and knowing voice. He often referred to himself as your resident hippie. He became my crowd's favorite, even though W.A.Q.Y. was one of those sunrise to sundown stations, leaving us just as night descended and when we needed it the most. At some point, W.A.Q.Y. switched formats, first becoming a station claiming to be for women only, meaning that they featured soft rock and pop. By the late 70s, they changed formats again, switching the call letters to WBUL, playing soul, and then all disco. Crazy. Our favorite disc jockey joined a new FM rock station and let loose, playing harder and harder rock, and even songs like David Bowie's fame. But of course, these stations just played white rock hits, the same ones over and over, though we, in our white rocker sensibilities, tried not to see how pop and rock tied together so closely. One day I learned that the station would be doing a remote in Bessemer, where I lived, at the new Burger King. I didn't tell any of my friends and headed out that Saturday afternoon to the event. Two DJs were at the remote, and as I listened, I quickly knew who my DJ was. He was thin a bit dark complexioned, with long, wavy black hair hanging down his flanneled back. With my own long red hair blowing behind me, I stood among the thirty or so fans on a late fall afternoon, and at some point during his break, the DJ walked over to me. 
He introduced himself and asked what I thought about the station and the crazy aardvark mobile they were driving. That vehicle was likely a beaten-up and souped-up pinto with giant aardvark ears attached to the roof. He was very friendly and so interested in what I thought. We shook hands. He smiled at me, and as he walked away, he looked back once or twice. I was so young. Too young. At another event, a parade for the station through downtown Birmingham that passed by the jewelry store where my dad worked and which had hired me for the summer, I saw him again, riding in the aardvark mobile. He spotted me too, and I know he recognized me. Nothing ever happened between us, partly because I'm not gay and partly because he was older and our social circles never crossed. Or so I thought. One night, as I partied with my gay friend at another friend's house in preparation for going to Bell's, which had replaced the Gizmo as the premier disco in town, I was introduced to a guy who looked familiar. Though he had varied his given name, it sounded familiar, and though he had cut his hair, I recognized him. I reminded him of how I knew him, but he seemed disinterested or perhaps embarrassed. Maybe he didn't really remember me. Maybe he did, but no longer saw in me what he previously did. Maybe he thought I was judging him for leaving the rock world for the gay disco world, but I wasn't. What I knew I was doing, though, was admiring the ironies of our world, the likenesses, the ability to hold more in our cups than just one thing, one style of music, one way of seeing and experiencing our southern world. Once we got to Bell's, the night spread out as it usually did. We watched tall, black gay men execute moves to Donna Summer's I Feel Love that we tried to emulate. We danced with our friends without pairing up. Some in the group found new partners and left for greater things. And my good friend and I drove home to our respective parents' house, revisiting the night and listening to corporate rock along the way. I hadn't danced with the former DJ at the club, and at some point, after I saw him groove into Cheryl Lynn's Got to Be Real, he disappeared. I never saw him again, which makes me wonder, or shudder, given all that was in the air back in those disco days of the early 1980s. Today, my Apple Music library is filled with some southern rock, some disco, and as much else in between as I can fit. From Lady Gaga to Best Coast, from War to the Black Pumas, I try to keep up with all of these sound cultures. From time to time, my wife and I will dance to the beat of a time past. She and I went to gay discos in Knoxville together. Our first date included dancing at a club called The Factory. Now, whether it's the Bee Gees' You Should Be Dancing, the Jacksons' Shake Your Body Down to the Ground, or Hot Chocolate's Everyone's a Winner, we try to keep up for as long as we can, though our bodies and my long hair aren't what they used to be. I still love disco and always have. Let that be known. And also, let it be known that a while back, as I was playing the Allman Brothers' eponymous first album, my wife, who is a native of Iran, asked who we were listening to. It's so beautiful, she admired. Yes, it is, I said. It always has been. The disco, the rock and roll, white, black, gay, straight, all of it.
This story is copyright 2021 by Terry Barr. This recording is copyright 2022 by Rivercliff Books and Media. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pen Dust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com.